0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, Shane's not here,
1: or Tammy, or Susan. I guess it's just you and me again, Siri. I don't understand what
0: you're saying, Ben. What is
1: B-roll? I'm not sure I understand either, Siri.
2: Hey, hey, Ben, uh, sorry to bother you in your, in your private Zoom room, but is everything all right? We are hearing some strange voices from outside.
1: Sorry about that. Uh, Siri and I were just getting ready to chat about the news for rational security. You know, Ben, you, you work in an
3: office with like six or seven real people who like to talk about the news.
2: Do you want us to maybe hop in here?
1: I don't know, guys. I'm just not sure you can recreate the sort of natural chemistry that Siri and I have always had.
4: Well, why don't we at least give it a shot?
3: And, you know, if this works out, you can always have Siri on in lieu of fun.
2: Hello, and welcome to Rational Security 2.0, the new batch. We are so excited to have you here this week with our returning now deposed overlord, Ben Wittes. Ben, thank you for joining us. How does it feel here to be, to, to be here today with uh, the nouveau regime?
1: I'm here in the Najibullah chair uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, of Rational Security. If, if you don't get that joke, uh, look it up. Um uh uh no I feel like the Taliban has marched into Kabul and and I'm just sort of watching from the sidelines.
4: Unfortunately familiar feeling these days. But ben is what we call a revanchist power in uh, in IR <laughs> theory. He's just waiting to spring back and take back the reins. No no doubt, I no don't doubt.
1: I I I don't resent the coup at all. I think it was time to turn things over to to new blood and Uh, when I, you know, stage my comeback, I will hang you all by your toes and flog you until the skin (laughs) leaves your back.
2: Well, Ben is, while he may be striking a positive tone, people should know he's not wearing a traditional dog shirt. He is, in fact, in black and mourning today, I can only assume, for rational security 1.0.
1: That's right. Um, And look, I represent the old guard, displaced by the young Turks. Um, We're and really
3: mixing our regional metaphors here. We are. Let um, me add
4: one more. Ben, ben is the old Europe of rational security podcasting. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm, I'm the, I'm the sick old the man. The sick man Europe. thereof, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, I'm, a, as a representative of the Ancien Regime, I, I feel like I should be in good spirits about the whole thing. <laughs>
2: Well, we are very excited to have you here today for the Bloodless Coup edition. Uh, I'm Scott R. Anderson. I'm a senior editor with Lawfare and a fellow at the
4: Brookings Institution at Columbia Law School. Wait, you're a fellow at the Brookings Institution at Columbia Law School? And Columbia and... Law School. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, I'm Alan Rosenstein, also a senior editor here at Lawfare.
3: And I am Quinta Jurassic, also a fellow at Brookings and a senior editor at Lawfare and a contributing writer at The Atlantic
1: and found and gagged here in the corner I'm Benjamin Wittes
2: um, begrudgingly present Benjamin Wittes uh, and we are here happy to have you all here today for the bloodless coup edition or we're going to be talking about the Taliban's new interim government in Afghanistan and what it might mean for the future of that country and relations to the United States the Biden administration's border problems and the uh, the Biden administration's border problems and the challenges it's facing in the courts and our summer from hell: whether climate change promises to make wildfires, heat waves, and floods our new normal moving forward. Alan, let me turn it over to you for our first topic.
4: Yeah. So the uh, the Taliban is back. Uh, Twenty years after they uh, they left, they are now back in control of Afghanistan, and they formed uh, their interim government. It has a lot of uh, some old faces, actually. Um, some some original uh, original characters are back. Um, no, no sign um, that uh, the Taliban is going to change its uh, approach over, you know, that, that it's maintained over the last 20 years. Um, and so, you know, what, what do we think this means for, for the future of the Taliban, you know, in Afghanistan and, and in particular? And let me get, I'll turn this back to you, Scott. You know, how, how do we think they're going to start acting on the international stage now that they're back in power? Well, let's kind of think about what we know so
2: far about this government announcement that's come out today. And we're still seeing little... Bits of information leak out. Um, We know that the figure who's kind of been the figurehead, the spokesperson of the Taliban for the last few years from Doha, uh, uh, Mr. Baradar, uh, Abdul Ghani Baradar, is going to be the deputy prime minister uh, underneath the former foreign minister, uh, Hassan Akund, I think Mohammed Hassan Akund, who is now the uh, new prime minister. Like you said, these are a number of kind of Familiar faces, but some of the most notable inclusions actually are in the security apparatus. The most notable one, probably of anything, is the head of the Haqqani network being the new interior minister for the interim government, um, and uh, the new defense minister being um, the former son of the leader of the Taliban for many years. So it is this kind of familiar cast of characters. It's kind of who you would expect to be cast from. Um, a lot of the figures of Taliban leadership of the last few years. Notably, it's predominantly, uh, if not enti- mostly, p- entirely Pashtun. Um, and so it's got a lot of criticisms even from people saying it's not even ethnically representative, really, of Afghanistan and its broader sections, let alone politically. Uh, and so it's c- it kind of puts forward a challenging face compared to what people are hoping, or the Taliban was kind of promising, which is that we're going to bring forward some sort of new inclusive model of governance. We're going to try and include other factions. And that European governments, Western governments, the United States, and a lot of the United Nations and other entities have been really pushing them to say, hey, we need to see some solid steps in a more inclusive direction if we're going to talk about recognition and normalization and all the things that you, the Taliban, say you want for Afghanistan underneath your rule. So in that regard, it's, Looks like a step in the wrong direction, or at least uh, not a step in the right direction in that regard. We haven't seen because the news came out relatively recently when we we're recording. We haven't seen a lot of official reactions yet, um, but certainly nobody's rushing to the gates to say welcome to the new Taliban government. To the Taliban's credit, which is something I never thought I would ever say, but I will say it here and now. To you know, Scott, credit, you, you
3: don't got to hand it to them.
2: I don't have to hand it to them. But to, to, to the Taliban's credit- Scott, and Scott occurred, Anderson, Taliban apologist, everyone. <laughs> they did they at least preempted some of these concerns by saying, this is an interim government. They've promised that we're going to have a permanent government that this is going to transition to that's going to have more inclusion from other factions, something that we know supposedly they've been working on for several weeks now, but that I guess- in, Presumably, they were not able to pull together for this initial announcement. So they seem to recognize there's some, there's some disconnect between what they've been promising, what they've been asked for from the international community, what they're providing today, uh, and at least some nominal indication that they intend to fill that gap. But whether they'll be able to or not, today's kind of array of figures isn't a really promising sign that, that they will, that the internal politics of the Taliban will let them meet external demands.
3: I mean, one of the really interesting things I was thinking about as we sort of watched this news get unveiled was a really just astonishing piece of journalism by um, Anand Gopal, who also wrote a book about the war in Afghanistan in the New Yorker, which is called um, "The Other Afghan Women," in which we can link in the show notes, where he he's sort of profiling uh, a number of women, one in particular who live in. Helmand province in an extremely rural area of the country and who really carried the burden of civilian casualties in this war. He says he thinks that about um, everyone he talked to on average had lost 12 to 13 family members, which is pretty astonishing. But he ends by kind of saying he's gone around, you know, talking not only to these women in rural Afghanistan, but also to uh, Taliban fighters and that his impression is that there's a real divide between the people who are the Taliban fighters who are sort of in leadership in the cities who are taking what he called a more cosmopolitan view you know they've spent time abroad they've been in Pakistan they've been in Qatar Um, and the Taliban fighters who are sort of returning to or maybe never left some of the more rural areas of the country including where Gopal is reporting in Helmand and that Who are who are more sort of advocating, you know, returning to the way that things were before during the 90s. So that that struck me as kind of an interesting tension. Scott, I don't know if you you're seeing that bear out in the announcement about the interim government at all.
2: No it's a really it's a great piece of reporting you're totally right and it kind of fits into this narrative that i think is, is beginning to emerge as people look back to say well where were blind spots or kind of misperceptions about certain situations in Afghanistan and that's that is this kind of rural versus urban divide this idea that how people particularly afghans experienced uh, the last twenty years really different was really different between rural and urban areas, and that the Taliban and other actors are calibrating their approaches to those different areas to reflect those different degrees of exposure. And it's a reality, you know. Kabul is a very different level of global exposure. In a lot of ways, it's one of the few regular areas of that of global exposure that still exists in Afghanistan, um, except for really intrepid reporting, and then often you know, secondhand accounts coming from different corners of the country. Um, And so the Taliban seem very aware that they need to be a little more strategic about how they approach some of these issues. But again, the question is, do they have the internal capacity to do that? We've also seen in the last few days a number of these major protests being organized by a woman in in major cities, urban areas, as well as other parts of the countries that are not as centrally urban, but primarily major cities, by my understanding being initially kind of tolerated, in some cases even kind of escorted by the Taliban for a period, and then cracked down on fairly violently, fairly brutally. And the participants of these protests are savvy enough to go online very quickly, post videos, post accounts, give them to the international media with whom they still have contact. Um, Now, maybe this is uh, a failure on the Taliban's part that. They can't get their people on the ground to do what the actual leadership wants maybe it's a sign the leadership doesn't actually want what it says it wants that there are lines that are a lot closer to uh, you know much more limiting on press freedom or protest freedoms than what the outside world would want and the regime is just essentially essentially trying to fudge the line on that and disguise that but it really does raise this big question about whether the internal capacity of the Taliban, to meet these sorts of expectations that it itself has seemed to set up for itself in this rhetoric it's adopted saying, but well, we are going to respect women and we are going to do things differently than we did in the 1990s.
1: So I want to raise a note of skepticism about the Taliban's capability to do things differently than it did in the 90s. It is one thing to not execute women in soccer stadiums uh which they did a fair bit of in the 90s it is also another thing uh it is possible you know there are only so many buddhas to blow up um and um they took care of all of them the first time um but this is not a group of people that is well positioned to run a state um they have uh, very few trained bureaucrats, uh, so they are largely just inheriting bureaucracies uh, and ministries that pre existed them. Uh, they are, and that means that they are either going to have those ministries not function, or they're going to intimidate people into running them, or they are going to accommodate the sensibilities of those people to some degree. Um, I understand why the international community is hoping for the third. Um, uh, I suggest we should all be willing to be pleasantly surprised in this regard, but you don't start with the assumption that a group of people who spent the last 20 years you know, came off a, a spree of extreme brutality and no governance. Spent twenty years engaged in a very brutal insurgency that involved no governance, just coercion and killing. Uh, Will walk in and and be the enlightened uh, kind of overlords of a reasonably modern state that. Uh, we would all like to see them be. Uh, they don't have the presumptive cooperation of a large swath of the population. Um, they have an ideology that they take very seriously and they've been you know, willing to die over long periods of time for, uh, and that isn't actually consistent with running a modern state. And so I don't think there's a lot of reason to be optimistic about it, and the fact that they couldn't get a reasonably representative, even ethnically representative, interim government is a reflection of that. Uh, At the end of the day, the Taliban is an organization of uh, very violent Pashtun men and, uh, and has never had much appeal beyond that. And I think that is what we're likely to see as a government. uh, And I would love to be wrong about this.
3: I mean, I I did wonder, when you appoint the head of the Haqqani Network, a designated foreign terrorist organization, in a leading position in your government, like, just how does that even work (laughs) mechanically? I imagine this, not that they were going to have an easy time accessing assets of the Afghan government overseas anyway. But this can't, like, it just seems like a weird move, like making things difficult from moment one. Or am I reading too much into that? At least they
2: made him the interior ministry, meaning he doesn't have to leave the country to do his job. So the $5 million bounty on his head the United States government has (laughs) is unlikely to be an issue there. But no, it's exactly the question. I mean, his role, I think, in this government was one of the big outstanding questions, because if he had a significant one, then it was going to be a problem no matter what. And they could have put him in the ministry of water resources or something else that would have put him politically a little more marginalized. But instead, they probably for internal reasons, put him in charge of internal security forces. and That's a pretty important role and one that obviously involves a lot of the tools of violence that he has used very effectively in his prior role. Uh, and so in that regard, it's a problematic sign that he is going to continue to wield a lot of influence in that way
4: moving forward. I, I think we should move on to uh, to our next topic. Before I do it, the, the one thing I want to pile on to this litany of of bummer um, is, is also the fact that you know, as bad as the Taliban is, and I agree with Ben entirely, that there's no reason to think that they'll be substantially better than they were 20 years ago. Um, in, in some sense, the international community is kind of stuck rooting for them because the alternative might actually even be worse. So you know, if you think about organizations like the Islamic State of Khorasan, um, you know, other groups that are going to be vying with the Taliban for power in Afghanistan I mean, these are, these are people, I mean, ISIS-K in particular um, was a group of Taliban that were expelled for being too radical and too violent, right? These are the people we're talking about. Um, so you have this difficult situation where on the one hand, um, you know, there's no reason I think that the Taliban are going to be meaningfully better in terms of uniting the country, certainly in terms of treating women properly, um, in terms of purging the terrorist elements from their organization. And yet they may actually be better right now than the, you know, the alternative um, uh, power structures uh, uh, in Afghanistan.
3: Yeah, so the the topic I wanted to talk about is also, you know, really, really cheerful, um, which is the situation at the southern border with immigration right now. So as our listeners probably know, um, there's been a bit of a legal hubbub over this recently. The Biden administration uh, announced its plan to roll back uh, what's commonly known as the Remain Mexico program. Um It's Administratively, it's known as MPP, for Migrant Protection Protocol. Um, Then that was enjoined by a Texas judge. Um, The Fifth Circuit okayed that, and the Supreme Court declined to intervene. So the rollback was rolled back, essentially. Um, And meanwhile, I should also say I think an important uh, aspect of this is that the administration continues to... uh, turn back people who are trying to cross the border under Title 42, which is an authority that allows the government to prevent entry um, in a health situation. So they're essentially using the pandemic, which is sort of an additional layer on top of all of this. And there was a interesting and I I would say troubling New York Times story uh, the other day that essentially said that the Biden administration is quietly um, a little relieved, actually, by the Supreme Court's ruling because they were worried about getting hammered from the right, about people trying to enter the U.S. from the South. And now the Supreme Court has kind of given them some political cover in saying you need to make a good faith effort was the term that the appellate court used to reinstate MPP. And so the administration can sort of make efforts to put that back into place um, without pissing off its supporters too much over going back on one of its key promises, which was to get rid of MPP. So this is a real sort of witch's brew of political toxicity, legal complexity, immigration law, which is something I hate the most in the entire world. Um, I'm interested to hear all of your thoughts.
4: Yeah, so I you know, before we get into it, I, I do want to point out the the name of the program that the Trump administration implemented is such a classic example of just crazy or doublespeak. So it's called the Migrant Protection Protocol, but of course it's the exact opposite of a protection protocol because it takes people who want to enter the United States. Often because they're fleeing persecution, or even let's say they just want better economic opportunities, let's say, and instead of them letting them go into the United States, they're kind of just like stuck in this limbo in Mexico. And of course, the Trump administration argued that well, the Mexican government has agreed to provide them all human, you know, all the humanitarian um, protections that you know, we would not have been able to do so. But it's it's pretty obvious that this was just a way for the administration to keep people out of the country. And whether or not you agree or disagree with the asylum system or the immigration system or think people should hang out in the United States while they have their cases processed calling it the the MPP the migrant protection protocol I always thought was kind of crazy. So I am I'm going to stick to uh the the remain in Mexico policy because I think that's just much more descriptively uh that's much more descriptively accurate. Um
3: it- I mean I also think it's it's worth Underlining which I didn't before, just how incredibly horrific a lot of the conditions were for people who are waiting on the other side of the border, um, people who are sort of forced into border cities like Tijuana and Juarez and Matamoros. Um, there are essentially industries of kidnapping, uh, people who kind of show up and don't have anything and are helpless. Um, so it's it's not even, you know, the sort of Kafka-esque aspect of. Saying that something is, you know, you're protecting someone who you're forcing into another country. It's that you're forcing them into another country under insanely dangerous circumstances and then not letting them back in.
4: You know, Quinta, I asked you a question about is the Biden administration secretly pleased? Um, I mean, you know, the, the politics of this are complicated. And I think people forget, given how much the Democratic Party in its public messaging, and especially the progressive wing, has turned in favor of immigration and immigrants. It was not that long ago when the Democratic Party was just as much into border security as the Republican Party. Um, sometimes this was for tactical reasons, uh, you know, when the Obama administration, for example, thought that if it deported enough people, it could convince the Republicans to get on board for, um for uh, comprehensive immigration reform. And of course, you know, Joe Biden was part of that, that administration. And sometimes it was for actually substantive, sincere reasons. Right. There was a long time when a lot of Democrats thought that immigration was actually not so great for their constituents because it would lower employment rates or, 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 or wages or or, or whatnot. Um, so, I mean, I do think there's still that aspect within the Democratic Party of being really sensitive and, and um, you know, appreciating being able to to blame, um, quote unquote, uh, this need to to keep people out of the country on on another institution.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort.
1: But part of the problem here is that we are uh, using a system that was not meant for what we're using it for, and we're not creating a system to handle the problem we're having. An enormous percentage of the people who are approaching the border are not eligible for asylum. Uh, Now, some of them, you could say that's because our asylum standards are too rigid. But if you loosen the uh, asylum standards even a fair bit, an enormous percentage of these people would still not be eligible for asylum because they are frankly economic migrants Uh, or because though they may have some fear of persecution, they cannot establish it uh, to the satisfaction of the law, the right way to handle this situation is a situation is an approach that neither the left nor the right is interested in, which is to liberally grant temporary worker visas. Relatively few of these people want to permanently live in the United States. A lot of people are the uh, uh, migrants or are, se- are would be seasonal workers who want to go for a period of time to make money in the United States, send money back home and maybe return. Uh, There is no good reason for us to uh, create an environment in which to leave Guatemala, you have to leave on a semi-permanent basis. Um, And we should be fairly liberally granting large numbers of temporary worker visas and allowing people to come and go more or less as they please, um, this would alleviate pressure on, uh, you know, the immigration system. Since these would not be uh, permanent residents, it would also not require people to uh, go through this crazy exercise of showing. That they're facing persecution whereas in many cases they're simply facing life in a difficult environment you know gang dominated El Salvador is no picnic even if it's not directed at you but the right has no interest in this because it allows large numbers of people to immigrate or come into the United States and the left has an allergy and the unions have an allergy to temporary worker visas so the result is that we have this basically broad societal agreement to handle what is essentially a population migration uh issue and a and a work issue through the lens of asylum which is very badly tailored to handle it and i think as long as we don't face that reality we're going to tear ourselves in knots over questions like whether people should have to remain in Mexico while their asylum application is pending. The right way to handle it is to create easy alternative pathways to entry uh, that are tailored to the situation that we're facing.
2: Yeah, I don't disagree with that. And I think this is a proposal, an idea we've seen kind of resurrect itself every time there begins to be a half-serious conversation about immigration reform or, com- com- quote-unquote, comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, worker Temporary worker visas tend to work their way into part of the conversation because there is a genuine economic demand in the United States, uh, and it does seem to check all the boxes why a lot of migrants, not all of them, there are some who are genuinely under threat, but a lot of them... Uh, do come here for economic reasons. It really is just a fundamental problem of our dynamic around immigration in this country generally, and we're seeing it pop up again and again, and so many of the consequences really coming home to roost. Now, you think about the failure of the SIV program in regards to Afghans, in regards to uh, Iraqis as well, although that hasn't gotten much coverage. Um, you know, this recurring problem we have is that we basically just have one dial that Congress has given the executive branch the executive branch is willing to use, and that is enforcement. And you can dial it up, maybe there's a couple of different dials of different types of enforcement, right? The Trump administration is willing to say, we're gonna make conditions pretty bad to try and scare people from coming in the first place. Biden administration isn't willing to do that, but they don't seem to have really settled on a new policy other than to say, well, we're gonna try and make it more humane, but we're not gonna take away a lot of our existing authorities to remove people and prevent people from coming. The Obama administration we saw tried to invest in border security substantially, with more substantial targeted enforcement around more problematic enterprises, reducing, uh, you know, economic incentives for people to break the law and bring in illegal immigrants by targeting actual employers there. Um, if investing money in border security, but that didn't really get them off the political hook either. And we have such a toxic dynamic around this; it's really problematic. I do think there's a question now as to what, what I think a lot of people are raising regarding the most recent Fifth Circuit. Decision regarding the MPP program, whether that's now bleeding into the courts. We saw the courts there take a kind of aggressive stance against how the Biden administration had tried to roll back and repeal this MPP program, basically saying, you didn't explain it well enough, uh, and then not choosing not to do with what courts often do in these circumstances. And the Biden administration argued that they should have, which was remand it for further explanation. Don't vacate the policy and reverse it. Um, essentially, on the Fifth Circuit's view, at least that you know you didn't even show to us that there was a reasonable, an alternative, reasonable basis by which you could explain it. Which I think is a little bit of a stretch of the record. Like it's not hard to imagine what a better explanation would look like in this particular case. Um, but you know there. That toxic dynamic, maybe there's arguments leading into the courts here a little bit. Uh, If nothing else, there seems to be really a more willingness in this particular case to really scrutinize um, executive branch policy justifications uh, and push back on them, at least by this handful of judges, of of whom a number were Trump-appointed judges. And like that's, that's both... It's a dynamic that you can kind of understand and see in other circumstances, and where other circumstances... People have liked it during the Trump years because it's prevented the Trump administration from doing a lot of problematic things, immigration-wise and otherwise. Um, but it, uh, you know, it's also one of these things saying, well, "What is the court's proper role and how does it actually handle that responsibility?" Because what is an adequate explanation is a little bit of a subjective standard if you if you apply too much scrutiny with it, and that's kind of one of these like fundamental questions of administrative law. That's Parentally resurrects when you see these sorts of shifts in how courts approach these questions.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I I, I think that supporters of the Biden administration are being, I, I think they're being a little. There's a little bit of selective amnesia here going on. I mean, it, in the Supreme Court, you know, when the Supreme Court rejected or when the Supreme Court, you know, up, upheld the Fifth Circuit's decision to enjoin the Biden administration's canceling of the Trump policy, right? So when the they Supreme rolled back Court- The
3: rollback of the rollback. Yeah, exactly.
4: Thank you. Um, when, when they did that, um, you know, the, the one case that they cited in the kind of unsigned per curiam one paragraph opinion was the DACA case from 2020, um, in which the Supreme Court then famously held that the Trump administration could not undo the Obama administration's DACA policy because, you know, it had not been sufficiently um, explained and that the reasons for the policy were um, or the reasons for the Trump administration's decision were unconvincing. And, and of course, look, like these administrative law questions are really hard and you can always point to various factors to distinguish them. And you can say, well, in this case, and there's a great uh, piece by uh, Peter Margulies on, on Lawfare that we'll link to uh, in the show notes about this, right, going to the details here. Right. And you can say, look, in this case, um, the Biden administration actually did a better job explaining why they were acting than when the trump administration did it and here there are these foreign policy implications right and you know courts should defer to to the government and that all may be true but you know it is it is difficult once you once you start letting courts scrutinize you know executive branch judgments and particularly the decision to overturn what a previous administration did Um, it becomes quite difficult to then cabin that. I mean, I I will say, right, and I'm I'm a fan of DACA, and I guess I was happy from an outcomes perspective on what the Supreme Court did during the Trump administration with regard to that. I've always found it a little odd that, um, you know, administrations... Don't have the power to kind of summarily reverse what previous administrations have done. I mean, I've always thought that on the kind of elections have consequences theory, part of what you get when you are a new administration is that you are allowed to look at the substantive political choices of your previous administration and say, we just don't like that, right? And, and that, in fact, courts should be pretty deferential to that. Now, for you know, obvious reasons, and I think some of them were kind of Trump exceptionalist reasons, the Supreme Court did not do that. Um, but I think a little bit of that is coming home to roost, and you know I, I think we have to I think we do have to 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 recognize that fact.
2: Well, I think that's a good point to jump into our third topic from. Uh, and that is the experience that we've been having this past summer here in the United States, one that I think it's safe to say would lead even Roland Emmerich to blush at the level of uh, natural disasters that we've all been living through, from wildfires in the West, uh, horrendous floodings in the Northeast and in many other parts of the countries, American South, uh, droughts, heat waves in the Pacific Northwest, uh, parts of the country that don't most people don't have air conditioning in. Um, We've seen a number of estimates showing that as many as a third of Americans experienced an extreme weather event in one of these categories, not to mention the most recent hurricane, of course, in Louisiana, more than one third of Americans have experienced uh, one of these major weather events personally in the last few months. Um, That's a pretty phenomenal development in my mind. I, I can't think of a period where we've seen so many of these things stacked up and affecting such a broad part of the country. Um, even here in the very moderate mid-Atlantic region, we have had touches of this, nothing so severe, but certainly uh, flooding incidents, number of major storms, all of which is tied back to this phenomenon of climate change, the very existence of which is still heavily debated and very politically contentious. Ben, let me turn to you to open on this one because I'm kind of curious for your thoughts. Is the fact that all of a sudden this is a shared experience to some degree, at least for people who acknowledge all these things are linked by climate change, does that seem to be changing the ground at all politically around the debate around climate change or does it have the potential to do so? Or is that rooted in something other than these sorts of experiences that, that hasn't been budged by them?
1: So the politics of climate change is always mysterious to me, because if you think about it in a coldly rational way, it should be no different from the politics of getting insurance, uh, which getting is- getting a vaccine? Say, uh, no, vaccine, actually, the politics of vaccines are quite different, because the politics of vaccines are- You personally are at very high risk to get COVID, which can be a deadly disease, unless you do this, right? Whereas insurance is, there are these low probability events that probably won't affect you, but you can reduce your exposure to them by spending a certain amount of money now uh, and buying insurance policies against them. Um, that's very similar, actually, to the way a rational society, and there are very few rational societies, would think about climate change, which is, okay, probably you are unlikely to be affected by this, but down the road, somebody you know, uh, care about, you're, you know, will be affected, the society will be affected, so let's buy some insurance against the worst effects of this, Let's mitigate, spend some investment on the worst effects of this, etc., cetera, uh, as well as lessening our long-term exposure to it. Um, but that is not actually the way we think about it. The way we think about it is um, we, I don't have to worry about this because I can choose not to believe in it, or I can choose to think it is so far down the road that it doesn't affect me. Or... I can pretend that events that I may see happening are unrelated to it uh, or they're just part of a natural cycle, et cetera. The capacity for denial is very high as I suppose it is with respect to lots of insurance and actuarial matters as well. Um, I think the major consequence of these raft of uh, weather events is that they make that kind of denial harder, right? Because you're seeing all kinds of things happening, um, you know, and when your house is on fire, it's a, an inopportune moment to express a whole lot of doubt about the value of homeowner's insurance. Um, but um, look, the human, as Quinta reflects with her uh vaccine quip the human capacity for denial is very great and uh so whether you know though i think it certainly should change the way we think about these things i i grew up in the new york city area um we never had one superstorm in the my in the last few years we had superstorm standy and now we have this you know um you know i I it does seem qualitatively different. I don't remember uh, growing up hearing about record wildfires every year. Now, is some of that a difference in the way we cover it? Yes, um, but not all of it is. And so I do think it should have an effect, um, but I just am less confident that it does because of the way we instinctively rationalize risk.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I I think that I think the comparison, Quinta, that you made with the vaccine issue is is really instructive, right? Because if we can't even all get on the same page about a vaccine, which is or, or which is, really, of course, downstream from can we all get on the same page that COVID is serious and we should take certain precautions against it, et cetera, et cetera, um, right? Uh, how can we possibly get on the same page on something as amorphous as climate change? And sure, it's been a lot worse. I mean, I'm, I'm in Minnesota, right. And um, you know, our, our state was on fire uh, uh, this year, which is, which is very unusual, right. That's usually a West coast thing, but that happened to us. And so for, you know, a week we all had to stay inside. Um, so, you know, you can be, you know, the, it, climate change is getting increasingly a personal thing, but as we've seen with, with COVID that doesn't, that's no, guarantee that people will take it seriously. And then you know, I think there are at least two other issues that, that make that make me not optimistic that we're at an inflection point, at least not one that's gonna um, drive policy making very soon. And, and those are sort of two things on the, the left, right? Which is the, the part of the political spectrum that has tended to take this more seriously. Um, you know, one is um, there are a lot of people on the left that'll tell you that climate change is really important. But when you ask them how important is it relative to all the other priorities that you think are important, it's like 12th or 17th or something like that, right? And if you have 20 priorities, that means you don't have any priorities, right? Like, And until climate change becomes a number one, a number two, a number three priority, um, then uh, it's not – we're not going to see much movement on it. And the inconspicuous failure of climate change to be a galvanizing issue in the 2020 Democratic primary um, – is a sign that um, it's not quite there yet. Uh, and then even for those who think it's important, they're often don't seem to be willing to actually make the hard decisions necessary to fight it. So, so you know, for example, when people say, I think climate change is really important, um, I think the reply should be, okay, so how much in favor of nuclear power are you? And if the answer isn't, I wanna build a nuclear power station you know, on every block up and down the, the United States, then I, I don't think you think climate change is all that important actually um you know you you may you may think it's important part of your identity to talk about climate change a lot and to you know put the appropriate lawn signs out but unless you're willing to make the kind of hard choices um then i'm not sure how serious you are about climate change um you know then again obviously the problem is getting worse obviously it's getting harder to um to uh to ignore it um the economics are are moving in the right direction at least and so you know as as long as the energy sector continues to invest in renewables and develops better nuclear uh, power technology, I mean that's that's a good sign, but I don't think we're at that societal inflection point yet.
3: I do think ironically, because I'm usually a quite a pessimist, it is important to acknowledge that in some ways the numbers are trending in the right direction, not in the sense of the actual climate. They're very much trending in the wrong direction there. But in terms of American public opinion, Um, If you look at the number of Americans who describe the climate situation as a crisis, this is according to a 2019 uh, Washington Post piece um, from a poll they ran with Kaiser. Um, The increase in Americans who describe climate as a crisis went up quite dramatically over the last few years. And eight in 10 Americans as of 2019 say that climate change is caused by human activity. That's actually better than it was even quite recently. And I do feel like, though there is definitely still a question of political will to actually address the problem, the sort of public perception of climate change as a problem in the first place, you know, whatever is causing it, um, may be steadying in a direction that is positive. I mean, I I do think, you know, I'll talk a little bit about my own experience. So I'm my family's from central New Jersey. They still live there. Um, The Hurricane Ida killed about 40 people in the New York, New Jersey area because of the flooding. Um, People trapped in their basements, um, in their in their cars. Um, There have been, I think, 13 tornadoes in New Jersey this year usually the average is uh, two. Um, Like that kind of thing just does not happen. And it is happening more and more and more and more. And so I do wonder, you know, saying the oceans are rising, you know, the world is getting warmer, might be abstract to people in certain areas of the country that have traditionally been, you know, a little inured from the effects of climate change. But if you live in, you know, greenwich new york or something and a bunch of your friends got stuck in their cars because of a hurricane that became unprecedentedly strong because of rising temperatures across the atlantic it just brings home in a lot more of an immediate way like this isn't a generic problem for the world or for my grandchildren this is a problem for me now because I lost my beach house. Um, and so I do wonder as summer in particularly in the U.S. becomes a sort of a season not of, you know, fun and play, but a season of danger. I, I have been wondering whether that will kind of be the slap across the face that people might need.
2: I guess for me, it really brings home this issue of does changing minds now really do anything to change the trajectory we're on and i think most science says almost certainly not it may curve the you know long-term trajectory towards a less disastrous outcome
3: which is not nothing that's a which lot which is
2: not nothing no, no no that's 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 definitely a positive but the idea that we're going to be able to put the genie back in the bottle and resume our normal lifestyles I, I think the ship is it seems uh, not a scientist It seems like the ship has sailed substantially on that, Um, particularly if you account for the fact that these changing public opinions are going to take a while to translate into changed behavior and changed uh,
1: politics and policy. Well, and particularly if you take into account that the U.S. accounts for a rather small percentage of global emissions at this point, you know, um, so people forget this, but U.S. uh, emissions is actually declining. Um, And US emissions are roughly what they were in 1990. Uh, um, And I think we account for something like 15% of the world's emissions right now. It used to be that we were, you know, the engine of the world, but we're not for manufacturing purposes anymore. And Notwithstanding the Bush and Trump administrations, we are relatively clean in our energy use. Um, And so, uh, you know, you end up with, uh, I mean, even if you imagine that people do a huge amount of hard work, uh, it actually doesn't affect global emissions that much unless you accept the rather implausible proposition that the rest of the world, including countries that are much more dependent on uh, fossil fuel emissions like China and India, are going to do the same at the same rate. And uh, so there is a, a kind of reasonable fatalism uh, if you think about this on a country by country basis without... Uh, a lot of uh, sort of leap of faith that the rest of the world will take uh, reasonable steps. And that's before you factor in the point that Scott just made, that the lag time between when the whole world gets its act together and when these uh, uh, unpleasant effects are going to subside uh, is long. It's, you know, it's, it's 30 to 40 years that we've baked in uh, a certain amount of warming uh, just based on carbon that has already been emitted. So it's, it's a pretty bleak picture, actually. I want to push back on that a little bit just
3: because I think there's some interesting research on how climate scientists initially presented their findings in the 90s and early 2000s that showed that the sort of argument was oh no this is really terrible if we can't fix this everything will be terrible and that that's actually not a very effective message for political change because people just look at that and say oh well we're all screwed um and that there is i mean when when we talk about ben you know changing the amount of degrees of warning 1.5 degrees celsius warming is bad like there is absolutely no way around that and i think we're irre- irrevocably on that path it's a lot better than 4 degrees <laughs> and we can avoid four degree degrees of warming. And so I do think that like there is a, there is a balance that needs to be struck between the loss that the world is experiencing from the 1.5 degrees that we're on a path for. And the fact that it is still extremely possible to avoid the worst case scenario and the Delta between the bad scenario that we're headed for and the very, very, very bad scenarios that we could be headed for is actually pretty huge.
2: Well, I, I think this leads into what struck me as for doing the reading around this as some of the most interesting, what struck me as some of the most underappreciated aspects of, of what this experience seems to point where we're going, which is that we're going to see a shift in a lot of our daily lives and a shift of the responsibility and expectations I think a lot of us might have around a lot of these activities. The thing that stuck out to me really uh, was that, you know, the example they gave is that places in that are prone to fires, which is a good part of the country, now are going to have to start taking such basic measures as not putting plants up next to their house uh, or hedgerows, because that just makes it that much easier for the fires to jump into residential areas where it's a big problem. That's actually a pretty dramatic shift in a lot of ways of a lot of established practices, cultural norms, expectations that people have. That's kind of just the tip of the iceberg. Um, And then you think about the degree to which the United States is positioned to do this fairly effectively, even though I'm sure there's going to be some culture shock and some discontent about the fact that things aren't the way they were and can't be that way anymore— Um, And the fact that policymakers are probably going to have to shift some risk to people who aren't willing to adopt those standards, uh, you know, put some costs on them to get them to do things that are necessary for the safety of the whole community, kind of some parallels to vaccines and public health policies there as well. Um, You know, we're just massively better equipped to do it than a lot of other parts of the country, parts of the world, excuse me, resource wise. Um, And so it really leads a question as to. Whether we can, while we can insulate ourselves from the shocks of this, both the drivers of some of these biggest changes and some of the biggest impacts that are going to be felt on a human experiential level is going to be in areas that just aren't inclined and don't seem to may not have as much capacity to adapt to them.
1: Yeah, so I just want to push back gently against Quinta's pushback and and make the positive case for uh, for fatalism. Um,
4: does two pushbacks equal a tug of war?
1: Yes, eventually. No, I, I, um, I agree with Quinta that, um, uh, there is a lot we can do and the case against fatalism, uh, it is possible to talk yourself into paralysis here. Uh, and I don't mean to do that. I do think that, uh, People put too much weight on U.S. policy, and particularly Americans tend to put too much weight on U.S. policy. U.S. emissions are no longer the driver. They are, uh, particularly with the decline of coal, on a natural glide path downward on their own, absent a whole lot of policy intervention. And the collapsing prices of renewables will hasten that. And so actually, there's, there's, you know, when you look at the problem right now, U.S. emissions are a much lesser part of the problem than, and a, and a more self-correcting part of the problem than the parts of the problem that we actually don't have any control over. And so while I am all for doing everything that we can, I do think you scratch your head and you say... Uh, uh, okay, there are some big baked in, you know, in addition to, you know, 30 years of baked in carbon already in the atmosphere, baked in warming, uh, there are, you know, the the levers that we have control over are actually relatively few and constitute a relatively small percentage of the problem.
2: We will not leave you, the audience, this week without sharing with you, of course, our object lessons. Alan, let me hand it over to you to get us
4: started. Yeah, so mine is kind of climate related. It's much more cheerful. Uh, My object lesson is the wonderful city of Duluth, Minnesota, uh, where my wife and our five-month old uh, went on our first, you know, I hate to call it vacation because vacation with an infant is mostly just parenting in another place. But there were moments of actual vacation-like relaxation, which was great um and uh I, I highly uh i highly recommend it it, it is a, a beautiful city it uh you know had its 1970s deindustrialization period but then it kind of reimagined itself as an amazing place for tourism and there's hiking and it's on lake superior uh, and it's up north so it will never run out of fresh water and you know even if even when temperatures go up it'll still be relatively comfortable so for for all you climate refugees who want a good weekend of hiking and uh good breweries i highly recommend duluth minnesota ben you wanna go ahead
1: sure so my object lesson is also in a strange way climate related Um, i have been on a personal uh i don't know if it's quite a quest um but a uh doing an experiment this past year to see how aggressively i can lower my own climate footprint Uh, which is a project that has had a number of different uh, aspects. But one of them uh, is that I've been trying in my personal woodworking, uh, of which I do a fair bit, to use only uh, materials that are uh, found in the neighborhood. In in this case, downed trees. Uh, a, A large cherry tree came down in my on my neighbor's property the other day, uh, the other month actually, and she had it cut up. And um, uh, I stole from her with her permission, three large uh, pieces of cherry stump, um, which uh, rolling from her house to my house uh, was actually quite a project. They're very large and very heavy. And I have been working on making out of them A uh, large uh, long-term carbon storage, uh, which is to say a conference table for lawfare. Um, And um, so I uh, recently finished, or I am in the process of finishing, the first quarter of this uh, conference table, and I was pleased to, uh, this morning, embed in it a um, uh, two- copies of the old lawfare challenge coin, which you can still get um, on the law, at the lawfarestore.com one heads up, the other heads down along with the baby cannon coin, one heads up and one heads down. and I'm going to uh, seal them in uh, to the surface of the the table which will store uh, a few hundred pounds of carbon for as long as lawfare exists. And I hear uh, that uh, one Quinta Jurassic is going to design me uh, a uh, Lawfare logo to burn into the surface of the table.
3: uh, No pressure
1: uh, with a with a wood burner. Uh, So uh, that is tendentiously related to climate, but there you go.
2: Ben, I think we're all for the reusable and recycling element of this, but if we find you dumpster diving for lunch behind the Brookings cafeteria, we are gonna have to pull the plug on it, just a (laughs) warning.
1: No, someday I will describe my carbon reduction regimen, uh, which has been a a very interesting little project over the last couple of years. Well,
2: soon we'll get you to be a vegetarian and then we'll really just take off, it'll be great. Um, Quinta, uh, why don't you go ahead and bring us up next?
3: So my object has absolutely nothing to do with climate whatsoever, um, except insofar as it is made of plastic. Uh, I have been somewhat fascinated over the last few years with the, I wouldn't quite call it a cult, but a uh, adoration of civil servants, which I think began under Trump and has kind of continued under Biden. So we first saw it with Comey and Mueller and now with Fauci Um, And I was very excited when a few months ago a family member brought me from a trip a uh, Mueller action figure, which I now have uh, by my desk watching over me. And so I was very excited the other day when I walked into a store near where I lived in D.C. and saw a selection of action figures, including uh, Fauci. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, and then also Bernie, Kamala Harris, and Joe Biden. So I I do wonder if this may be the only store that is still selling Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, action figures, but if you so desire, they are for sale. Uh, The Fauci one comes with a removable mask. The whole thing is just a a really interesting uh, adventure into American consumerism.
4: Does does the Fauci one come with a... a fauci ouchy syringe that you can attack your enemies with? Because I would pay extra extra for that model.
3: You may be able to find that on Etsy.
2: Well, my object lesson is climate-related as well in some regard, but the more immediate climate, the feeling this time of year as we feel the weather tip towards the lower end of the thermometer, I begin to dig my numerous cardigans out of storage, slap them on, grow my beard out to quite unprofessional proportions. Uh, You're a cardigan guy, Scott. You know, it's not something I I thought of until you just said it. And And it is, yeah, it. it is. You are, you have cardigan written all over you. I am, I am, I'm a cardigan Stan and will remain a cardigan Stan, uh, for the rest of my days. And that's why this time of year is so exciting for me. But last year, in the fall, it was missing a signature element, and that is the pumpkin beer, the autumnal beer that becomes my signature beverage this time of year. Uh, did not come out last year because of the pandemic. People who are not might, are not beer drinkers may not have realized this, but because the pandemic kind of kicked in when. All the summer beers were in production, and then beer consumption dropped dramatically, as well as the availability of cans and bottles. A lot of beer companies just kept with their summer summer lines pretty much all year trying to drain their inventory. We lost out on a whole year of seasonal beer drinking opportunities. I just want to
1: say, Scott, that it's one thing for you guys to have a coup and take over the podcast. It's another thing for you to shift the drink of the podcast, from scotch to beer. No, no, I'm, no, our I'm not saying you can't have to be here. I'm I'm I see pumpkin what beer. you're doing here. And I just <laughs> but, want to you, say, bound and gagged though I am in the corner, I raise my voice in defense of scotch as the official drink of rational security <laughs> what, about, about,
2: what do you think about scotch?
3: pumpkin lattes? Yeah.
2: Pumpkin lattes, I don't, I don't mess around with. I'm not pumpkin a pumpkin scotch, latte, as Alan says. Scotch, yeah, pumpkin scotch—that'd be terrible. No, regular <laughs> scotch, I'm on board with. So why why is pumpkin scotch that? terrible and pumpkin beer is is okay? Because it's all about the clove and the cinnamon and flavors that I just feel like are not with the peaty smokiness of a good scotch. Two different worlds that you are really looking for. You want the scotch to kind of like bring you into the cardigan and like put you down at the end of the night. But you need that pumpkin bear to get you motivated and sweetness to get you going. Um, but I would say it being back this year is the first time that I've started f- to feel like we're actually beginning to, despite the setbacks from Delta and the fact the next few months aren't going to be what we hoped they were going to be a few months ago, beginning to feel a little bit more normal uh, and can see kind of light at the end of the tunnel of the pandemic. So if you want to know what post pandemic life tastes like, in my opinion, it tastes like cinnamon and clove. Um, And with that, we will leave you adieu for another week. Thank you so much for joining us here today. And we will see you back here in Rational Security 2.0 next week. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forefather, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page haunting you from beyond the grave at lawfareblog.com. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at lawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a Lawfare supporter for ad-free podcast feeds and other special venues. You can follow us on Twitter at RATLsecurity and find us on our memorial page on Facebook. Wherever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review and or hit that share button to share it with those you love and to let the people know Rational Security is back. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. On behalf of my dearest frenemies Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein, as well as our very special guest, the once and future Benjamin Wittes, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye.